Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. Let's go. Ready? From the top. My favorite shows on TV have 12 minutes of advertising. I can't get behind that kind of time. Eat quickly, drive faster, make more money now. I can't get behind that. My kids say... He said to me, and I'm like, and he's like, and she's like, it's all, he's all, she's all. I can't get behind that kind of like English. That'll be six to eight weeks before delivery. The rising oceans, the warming temperatures. The dying polar bears. No oh, hello and welcome, welcome. You hear that music and you know, maybe you know, maybe you don't know, uh, but maybe you know that we're, that means we're doing all calls. Ask or tell me anything is what we're currently calling this kind of show. Um, it's, you know, even made even more alarming by the fact that I was off last week. It was the first actually real vacation I've taken in two years. I went to Cape Cod for four days. Uh, it's been very hard to get away, A, because of the pandemic, and B, as some of you know, I have very sick people in my family who <clears throat> it's not easy to leave their side for any protracted amount of time. But I did it anyway. And I unplug because everyone tells you to do that, to unplug. I mean, I didn't entirely unplug, but I like 80% unplugged. And as a result, I may not know what's happening today. So I'll be easy to take advantage of. The number is 888-720-WNPR. I realize four of those uh, things are not numbers. I should say the numbers and letters, 888-720-WNPR. That's the alphanumeric choice. Or 888-720-9677. And just to illustrate how this works, we have Noel who called up early. Uh, and uh, Noel is from Old Seabrook. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Welcome back from vacation. Thank you. Um, I wanted to know, as unplugged as you were, if you happened to catch on Saturday that the ELCA, Lutheran Church in America, mm -hmm. ordained its first transgender bishop. And I think it might be the first in any mainline church anywhere, um, but wanted to know if you heard about that and yes. what your thoughts are. Yes. Congratulations to Megan Rohrer. I believe that is the name of the bishop. Um, my favorite thing, actually, is what they say is, like what the news accounts say, uh, invariably is, this is the first openly transgender uh, bishop in the Evangelical um, Lutheran Church of America. I'm thinking, were there one, some people that they just, they weren't sure about, you know? I mean, usually... <laughs> I don't know. It seems kind of unlikely to me that there would be – there might have been another transgender bishop who just like didn't ever mention it to anybody. Uh, no, I think it's progress. I think, you know, everybody needs a representation. I mean, I, I sort of – I've spent time in different religious traditions and, and one thing that's clear to me is that Jesus didn't care about this stuff. So I mean, if you want to start with that, if you're a Christian church, presumably you should be kind of interested in Jesus. Jesus doesn't really mention any of this kind of stuff, any of this sort of 
what the Catholic Church has now uh, come to call pelvic issues, you know? I mean, like, they don't, whatever your naughty bits are, they're just not of any interest to Jesus. So, um, you know, um, yeah, I think it's really great. Of course, it had happened in Northern California, but they caught a little bit of Nevada, too, I think. Um, but, you know, I mean, yeah, three cheers for the event. I don't know if you're right about that, whether that's a – somebody will know whether that's the first transgender bishop of any kind. Um, I feel like there could have been – the Episcopalians will always surprise you, you know. Uh, but I, but off the top of my head, I don't remember one. I don't know. Uh, why are you calling? What does it mean to you? took place at the uh, Episcopal Cathedral. Yeah. And the, uh, the presider of the Episcopal Cathedral – also seem to the message seems to be that she's or they are the first yeah um but what it means to me is just my daughter was on the planning committee for the liturgy it was one of the most beautiful liturgies i have ever like witnessed um and the whole thing is just very exciting that the church is beginning to recognize that love is what matters that's very beautifully put yeah and i think also other churches are beginning to realize that it just it isn't anywhere within the the rubric of the Christian math message to tell people that there's some something fundamentally wrong with them that they really wouldn't be able to change anyway, you know. So I mean, I don't know. I attended a church for a while which was heavily populated by uh, gay and lesbian people um, who had grown up in evangelical churches where they just, you know, I mean, either people who didn't know that they were gay or lesbian were saying things to them at Christian Bible camp or something, you know, that was were incredibly harmful and destructive. Or if they were out, they were just basically told that they were damaged goods and maybe worse. And it just, you know, it seems so far from Jesus's message of tolerance and acceptance, you know, I mean, you can certainly find, you know, that within evangelical churches and and uh, and some that are not evangelical, they call it sola scriptorum. You 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 go with what answers you find in the Bible. Of course, you can often find all kinds of different things in the Bible. Not everything reconciles beautifully, but you know. If you just look at what Jesus said, it just doesn't seem like he's interested in this. You know? As a matter of fact, if you're reviled in some way, if other people are saying you're damaged goods, he's going to want to sit next to you. Yeah. Amen, Colin. Thank oh, you. All right. That's a big amen. That's a big amen. So uh, the number, you can call about anything you want. Uh, it won't bother me. Well, it might, but 888-720-WNPR, 888-720-9677. So, you know, what are the ways that conspiracy uh, theorists think? Is that they think that something, whatever it is, some story you're being told, they think that like vaccines uh, or, or not so much vaccines, but the entire pandemic, the entire notion of COVID-19 and SARS-CoV-2, that this is all a, a, a big conspiracy to make us more submissive and possibly more submissive to not only to the government, but to the business industrial complex, you know, um, so you can control people better. You can sell them more things. In fact, there is a there's a minor conspiracy going on right now that says that the Internet itself has been effectively dead since 2016 or 2017 and that um, that pretty much everything that you see on the Internet or maybe the bulk of what you would significantly see on the Internet is done by bots that are programmed by, you know, the Council of Hooded Figures, who represent the interests of business and corporations, who just want you to buy more stuff. 
You know, and first of all, what's interesting is that that critique is often coming from the right these days, the vaguely defined right side of the spectrum. Although it was like a long, long running critique from the left, right? That, you know, I mean, it's sort of like a Ken Kesey, you know, that's the combine wants to control you. Anyway, I say this because occasionally I run into proof that big business isn't interested in selling us stuff. I don't know what they're interested in doing. Um, so I'm just I'm sort of kidding about this, but so I've got this phone. It's an iPhone six, right? And I think that's like considered to be a pretty old phone. Although I think we're also kind of developing a set of mores about this. Like it seems to me that you know, I, I don't know. I don't know how long a phone is supposed to last. <laughs> but the problem is nobody really knows how how long a phone is supposed to last. They just know what they do and what other people do. You know, and and we don't fix anything. So if there's something wrong with it, you have to get get another one. All that kind of stuff. So I've been having a lot of trouble. I've become an annoying person to those people who in whose presence I am, because the minute I arrive anywhere, my phone is dying. It's basically just it just starts to you know if I turn my phone on and I look up something on the internet. Uh, it goes from 100 to 58 percent power almost immediately just because I did something. So I have this sort of sick and dying phone and I've had it for a long time and people are really getting tired of it and of me. Like if I walk into a house and I immediately have to plug in my phone before I say hello because my phone is dying. So anyway, so last week before I left for Cape Cod, I decided I would get a new phone so I wouldn't be up on Cape Cod, you know, Asking seals if they had, you know, a, a charger or something. So, um, so I go to. I'm going to just say too. I went to a Verizon store specifically, and you know, you may know with Verizon. I don't know how it works with other carriers. There are some stores that are really Verizon stores, and then there are some stores that look like Verizon stores, but they're essentially licensed to, to do business with as Verizon entities or something, but they're not really Verizon stores. And I'm not entirely sure I know why that's important, but I always feel like I should go to the real Verizon store. They sometimes call, sometimes we'll call that the factory store. So I go to a factory store and went to the one in Avon. And I said, I, and I even made an appointment to go. I went on their website and you can make an appointment. I made an appointment and I go in and I said to them, you know, I said to the guy, my phone is, I got to get a new phone. And he says, okay. He said, well, the iPhone 13s are coming in. And I said, okay, but they're not here yet, right? And he said, no. And I said, well, anyway, I don't care. I'll just take a 12. He goes, well, I don't have any 12s because it's something to do with the new 13s coming in. It's been hard to get the 12s. So I said, okay, I'll take an 11. <laughs> I was, I'm at a 6 right now. I figured I could drop down a few more notches and I'd still be making some progress. And so I'll take an 11. He goes, well, I don't have any of those either. And so I said, but you don't, and you don't have any 13s. He said, no. I said, basically, you have no phones. You should put that up on your website. We don't have any phones. Don't come here to this Verizon store trying to acquire phones <laughs> because we don't have those right now. You should, that should be like the first thing I see when I go on your site is don't come here and try to get a phone. And he said, well, I do have for $1,000, I have a, an iPhone 12 Pro. I said, so that's like if I talk on the phone for a little, if I use my phone, not even, nobody talks on their phones. If I use my phone, this is like what I do. I'm a professional iPhone user. <laughs> you know, I could pay $1,000 for this phone and then write it off. I, I don't know. What, what does pro even mean? Anyway, I didn't get that. But I just, I just want to tell you, 
big business is not as well organized as the conspiracy. I mean, if big business was as well organized as the conspiracists believe, that guy would have had a phone to sell me, like some kind of phone. You know, anyway, I'm still right back where I was. Okay, so um, let's see. Let's, uh, I'm just going to go right, uh, without judgment, without fear, I'm going to just go right down the list of calls here, starting with Jerry in Greenwich. Hi, Jerry, you're on the air. Hello. Hi, Colin. Hi. Uh, today's my birthday. I told the producer that, thinking maybe that helped me get in. Uh, and I'm 74. Happy birthday. So this is partly about being an old geezer. You mm-hmm. mentioned being an annoying person, mm-hmm. and I, I'm becoming more and more annoying. I know that, and I'm fighting it, but I'm not winning. I'm mm-hmm. not getting there. Um, what really bugs me is the youth movement that you would hear, for example, on your show or TV or radio in general, uh, uh, certain ways of talking that are driving me crazy. And it's the use of terms like incredibly when it's not incredible, um, sort of, kind of. My very favorite or unfavorite is the phrase very sort of. Very, I never heard that. Use it in a sentence. I don't think I've ever heard oh, anybody you say know, it. So it's very sort of amazing. It's very, oh, very sort, sort of, of amazing. Incredible that, yeah, oh, I hear it. I'm, I'm tuned into it too much. And uh, it seems that young people do it. And, and not quite so young people. But I don't know that people my age do it. Um, it's, these are verbal tics, I guess. Right. I get. But, I mean, I get a lot of calls and e- a lot of emails in particular from people who don't like the way people talk on the show. They don't like the way young people talk. They also don't like the way like we have a, a nose panel on Fridays. They don't like the uh-huh. way the people in the nose talk. They use the word like too much or, yeah. or something like that. And, and I feel yeah. like the older you are, the more likely you are to think that partly because there was – I think for a long time on radio, a kind of anti-naturalistic way of talking. Like the radio announcers that you and I listened to in sort of like circa 1960, you know, I mean, they had a really, I just did a you know, um, they had a particular way of talking and it was not necessarily the way that they talked off of the air. And and yeah, public it, radio it, has it, always it, done it, that. It's maybe a bit constipated. I mean, it's it's more, to me, it's a little more careful. I'm not saying that a person would never say, you know, or that they would never say like, but to do it so often that it's in every sentence, that's when it gets to me. And when I'm with my significant other and we're listening to the radio and here, here come the sort of, it's very sort of and all that, I start counting on my fingers and she says, stop it. <laughs> She's a few years younger than I am. And, uh, I guess she can tolerate it, and I got to get over it. But yes, I mean, I, I think you have to think, look at it. If you went to France, you know, there'd be all these little uh, interesting French dis- expressions, and and you'd be intrigued by them. And they they wouldn't all translate literally. They and some some of them are just you know s- slightly elevated versions of disfluencies. But it would be charming because you're in France and you want to know what their little verbal tics are, so you can feel like you're having that experience. But in a way, we're all kind of travelers all the time, and we're traveling from our age group into other age groups uh, we're you know we're interacting with people who are not like us and so one thing that you can do is try to relish a little bit the the um, the ways that people talk and if people talk people are in their 20s or 30s they're sort of from a different country and so they talk a little bit differently and so it might be interesting to learn some of their phraseology and because I think we have those things too um, and <laughs> 
<laughs> and people, when you talk on the radio, people notice whatever your verbal tick is and whatever your long string of verbal ticks are. And I often get remonstrations about whatever mine are. And they change. You know, I, you go through phases. So I remember I was getting – I was going through a phase where I think when I was interviewing somebody, I would say, talk a little bit about that. Talk a little bit about – what that means, you know, talk a little bit about why towels are important. I don't know. I guess I was saying something like that. And so this woman wrote to me and she said that she has her kids in the back seat of the car and they would keep track of how often I would do that and would, they would laugh and shriek hysterically anytime I would do it. And that's where she ended her email. And I wrote back, I said, are you asking me whether you should hit your kids? Because, yeah, definitely. I mean, just not hard or anything like that, but you'd reach over the seat and just whack them a little bit because otherwise – because they're, they're being idiots right now. Um, but that actually turned out <laughs> – she actually wasn't interested in knowing whether she should give, as the Maliazzi brothers used to say, the dope slap uh, to her kids. All right. So um, – but, you know, I mean, so that's a, an example of a young person being annoyed by an old person's verbal tics. It, it cuts both ways. 888-720-WNPR. OK. I – Oh, I know about that, too. I know about that. But I think I'm going to go to Chris and Ramon and uh, who knows. Uh, hi, Chris from Weathersfield. You're on the air. Hi. Um, I'm glad you're back. Glad to be I back. I uh, two things. Remember, um, we never uh, criticize our children uh, in any way. We re- uh, report uh, about behavior. And the word of the day to me is recalcitrant. Um, and, uh, look it up in the dictionary, stubbornly disobedient, um, obstinately defiant of authority or restraint and, you know, unruly. And that is what I believe is going on as a word, as a word with, um, vaccine. And I... I don't know if anybody agrees with me, but give it a label um, and ask it back to people. I mean, is this you? Is this really why you're doing this? Um, because that's what I'm seeing. And the, and the second thing I, I want to say was, um, wow, shadow docket um, procedures of how statutes are being written. Um, As a systems person, you know, there's a lot of spaghetti code of law on the books. And people, it it can be manipulated. That's it. It can be manipulated. Yeah. I I don't think that's a new problem. I mean, I'm I'm just going to sort of pounce in here and say that um, that for as long as I've covered government and politics, and that's a really long time, um, laws come into effect. That there's an orderly process for hearings on bills uh, and and for the ways that a bill can make it its way. How a bill can become a law to go to Schoolhouse Rock, um, and, and then there's the other way that they become laws, and that's been around for a really long time here in Connecticut. Famously, we use something called budget implementers. Uh, when the budget is passed, then there have to be laws that essentially kick 
start the budget. But those laws are not subject to public review or to public hearing anyway. And so people just put all kinds of greasy, slimy, porky, um, hitherto undiscussed things <laughs> into into that. As far as, you know, the, the vaccine recalcitrance, um, first of all, recalcitrance seems to me, you know, seems like an elevated word somehow. It, it feels, you know, it has a kind of nice um, quality of formality, I guess, is what I'm looking for. Anyway, I, here's how I'm thinking about it today. It just changes all the time, obviously. But there's some way in which we have to thread this complicated needle between empathy and firmness, right? You have to have some kind of empathy. Let's just read this piece by David French today. He gets into this. You have to have some kind of empathy for people who, for whatever benighted reason, sometimes it's because they watch the wrong TV station. You know, they watch Fox. They get kind of brainwashed into an anti-vaccine. Or they grew up in the wrong church. Or they grew up in whatever. For whatever reason, they don't want to get vaccinated. And they're frustrating to us. And, you know, it's like a quarter of the country is basically keeping the pandemic going. And you can't coddle them constantly. But I don't think also that it's not like they deserve to die or anything like that. They may die as a result of this, uh, but it's not like nobody really deserves that. And these people, a lot of them come to their own beliefs. I mean, we have a hard time facing that in general, that a lot of people come to their own beliefs under fairly benign circumstances, even if you find those beliefs to be toxic. Um, I think about the – do you remember the kid from Covington, Kentucky who was there? His name was Nicholas Sandeman. That's what his name is. He was there uh, on the Capitol Mall and there was like different groups that were kind of hassling each other. And he wound up kind of nose to nose with this Native American guy and and this picture froze the moment. He had kind of a smirk on his face and people just lit into him and then he became kind of a conservative hero. Uh, and at the time it was clear to me that this was – the story was not being reported completely and that since then it has become clear that that, that – it was a much more complicated situation and that this young man's – he was a high school student. His actions were not necessarily quite as obnoxious as they looked like. There were other people there. Uh, well, you know what it was? It was a day in the mall. There were like different groups of people who were giving each other a hard time, which is not a news story. That's basically what goes on you know, in public spaces, especially you know, big public spaces like the National Mall. OK, so – uh, why was I talking about all this? Oh, because I, I would discuss this with people on social media. They would say, yeah, well, I mean, anyway, he was there for some kind of anti-choice event. That's why this group from Kentucky was in Washington in the first place. And so that proves he's a bad person. And, you know, I mean, no, he – first of all, I, ironically, he may not have had that much choice about becoming anti-choice, or at least he hadn't, may not have reached the point where he would have made some kind of different choice. But a lot of the times, people just grow up in a particular tradition. And, and if that tradition tells them that abortion is murder, then, you, you know, you can't – I don't really fault a high school student for thinking he should do something about that. Um, you know, and he may see things differently as his life goes along. But the fact that he was brought up in a tradition which gave him that information is kind of a moral imperative. Um, you know, I mean, that's that's who he was at that moment and didn't necessarily mean he was a horrible person. He might have been misinformed by people with ideas from which you radically depart, understandably. But those are that's a very different equation. Anyway, I forget how I even got onto that. All right. Looks like we have to take a quick break, but we have lots of interesting callers. We've got Maggie. We've got Lee. We've got Ramon. We've got Owa. Owa. We've got Adam. So many people. Where have you been, uh, France? Uh 
we have to win. Well, what did I miss? Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go Team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. So these are real things that happen where you can apply these, these um, important concepts and understand that when we lose our connection to nature, we lose our spirit, our humanity, our sense of self. A security guard stopped me to offer an overview on phenomenal nature. She said, sculpture's not just formed from penetration. You see, men have lost touch with the feminine. And with her pink lipstick and her queen's accent, she went on for a while about our president. That's Hard Drive by Cassandra Jenkins, in case you were wondering. Okay, so but I recommend listening to the whole, to the whole thing. Um, so we're doing um, Ask or Tell Me Anything. And the number is 888-720-9677. The alphanumeric version of that is 888-720-WNPR. Okay, I'm just going to kind of just go right down the chain here without uh, with malice towards none. And we'll start with Ramon and Canton. Hi, you're on the air. Hi. Hello there. Hi. <laughs> uh, yes, I just... Um, uh, I wanted to talk. I'm a, I'm a psychologist mm-hmm. uh, by training, and uh, uh, on uh, the events of uh, 9/11, I received a call on the 12th from the American Red Cross, and they were looking for me specifically and looking for someone who could do counseling in Spanish and English. So after a short talk and them explaining that there would be a training involved and then they would call me for services. I agreed. I hung up and about 10 minutes later they called again and then they were looking for my wife, uh, Heather. (laughs) And uh, at that time we had little kids. So we, we got on the phone and told them, well, we can do it, but we have to take turns. We can both go at the same time. 
So we went through a training that started on that same week. Uh, the next day, and we went through tra- heavy training uh, on catastrophic, uh, uh, you know, handling of uh, of situations uh, with uh, a, a specific uh, connection to mental health delivery. Uh, and when I got there, I found uh, other people that I knew, you know, other colleagues, and we went. We all went through a training, and we were done on Sunday. So <clears throat> that would be Sunday the 16th. Mm-hmm. On Monday, uh, during the day, I got a call asking me to basically present myself to the Farmington, uh, to the Farmington um, facilities of American Red Cross, mm-hmm. and that I would be debriefed there of what was happening. So I that day I went to work with was, I was supposed to meet him like at 10 a.m. or something like that if I if memory serves. Uh, got the time off from work uh, and I went and presented myself there. They went through all kinds of identifications and things that I needed to have, and they told me you are in charge of the team and the team consists of a nurse, a social worker, and a logistics person. Mm-hmm. What I said, well, uh, well, I just got trained on this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you sure that's <laughs> that's wise? And uh, and they said, no, you are the person that's going to do this because you're the person who can handle language. Mm-hmm. And then they said, have you been debriefed on this? And I said, no, I just arrived here. So they took me to the director, and the director explained to me that my task, our task, the team task, was to. Um, uh, work with this uh, Puerto Rican woman. I am going to call her Doña Maria for <laughs> the effects of this uh, talk. And Doña Maria had apparently lost two of her kids oh on God. this event, on this catastrophic event. And um, one of her children, her adult children, was a flight attendant who on his day off was going to California from Boston. And uh, so he was going on vacation. And uh, the other one uh, worked as, as an accountant with some firm in one of the towers. And uh, the only way for her to verify if these, you know, if they were actually on, on the plane and uh, uh, on one of the buildings was to actually go to the command center that they had, uh, you know, at the pier in, the, uh, in New York. And I said, okay, so we'll do that. And so we picked her up in Hartford and we went to New York. Uh, mind you, I was a pretty fresh uh, counselor at that time. I mm-hmm. did not have the the flying hours that I have now, you know, I'm uh, back then I was 44 years old. I'm 64 now. So, um, I, you know, didn't have a lot of experiences that I could pull from in in terms of this kind of trauma or not many kinds of trauma, but, uh, but I decided to help anyway. Um, so when we picked her up, my, what I decided to do was to find out uh, a little bit about her, uh, where she came from, from the island of Puerto Rico. She was born in Puerto Rico in the southern part. And she, um, 
had had a husband who had died, so she was uh, a widower, but she had remarried and then divorced is what I remember. And uh, her her uh, older kid was was hers uh, biologically. The other kid that she also called her son, she had she made no differentiation on that. I believe she had met him when he was like one years old with her through her second husband, and uh, she raised him, you know, so together with her husband, and so uh, it was a kind of complex situation, you know, on that uh, because you had a, you had a, you know it's a loss anyway, but it was a really catastrophic loss, and with the terrible you know outcome of having two uh, of her children die on the same day. So uh, we went to, uh, you know, to New York. And during that time, I kept talking to her and asking her about pretty much trying to find out times where she had confronted vicissitudes and times where she had to, you know, work with that and how she overcame that. And in that talk, I found uh, that she was a pretty resilient person. And also a very spiritual person. So uh, I also talked to her about who were support her supports were and all those pieces. I was putting that you know that puzzle together before we got there. Mm. Uh, when we got there, it was also an incredible experience of going through. You know, uh, we were going in a vehicle from the American Red Cross. When we got to the parking lot, it was. You know, it's a, it's like looking at the car all over. You know, opening the entire car. They were checking us. They were checking everybody. You know, because of security. We went through several layers of security, and, and if my mind doesn't, uh, you know, it's not playing a trick here. I, we had at least like four different levels of security to get into where we were. As we were going in, I was losing personnel. You know, so at the end, it was just her and myself. And we talked to an FBI agent, and the FBI agent just, it turned out that he was a Latino man, and he was able to talk to her directly in Spanish. And he corroborated that uh, that her, one of her sons, the one that was in the airplane, was actually in the airplane, mm-hmm. and confirmed that he had died that, there, that day. But uh, he, he had a very specialized uh, list. So he told us, you need to go to this, or this. That place was like immense. It was like, I don't know, like eight football fields or something like that, or, or at least it seemed that way. Uh, and then we walked over to the other side. Uh, actually, he walked us over uh, to the other side where there was a CIA agent. Uh, he was an, an American uh, fellow, and he did not speak Spanish. So I translated, uh, and he confirmed that her other son had died. Oh, no. Also, that he was actually in the his in the, in, in the uh, building mm-hmm. in one of the buildings. Uh, so you know, you got to consider this is that this is a tremendous blow to this woman. Mm-hmm. And Ramon, I don't want to rush you too much, but because um, this is a very sensitive story, and it's a good story. But yes. if we don't wrap this up pretty soon, nobody else is going to get to. Call in, so if you can kind of okay. So, so basically, you know, after that, uh, I just worked with her in her grieving, but she was in shock, uh, in tremendous shock, and uh, it took a while 
you know, to be able to work with her uh, to the point of tears mm-hmm. so that she could start some of that. But anyway, I, I just wanted to say, you know, that story because uh, I've never known of her. She would, you know, I think she was in her early 70s at the time. Mm. And uh, so she must be, you know, in her 90s now she's alive. But but I never had any contact with her at mm. home. Well, I think another thing about this is, you know, I mean, that's a story of obviously incredible grief and incredible trauma. Um, And it's also kind of interesting that the Red Cross would be directing her to you and you to her. Um, But I do feel as though one of the things became clear over the last few days or that I was reminded of over the last few days is how many people who had no direct connection to 9-11 had PTSD, who were, how many people were just driven to some kind of brink? I mean, the pandemic, where in fact people have, I think, experienced comparable kinds of despair, this kind of despair that isn't so much linked to the specifics of the situation, but to the generalities uh, of the situation. Uh, I mean, I think these have been two major mental health crises spaced pretty much exactly 20 years apart. Anyway, Ramon, thanks for your call. I think what we should do is take a break. But if you're on hold right now, uh, Walter and Lee want to help out with the phone situation. Uh, Oa has something about art and business. Uh, Adam has a word issue. Uh, these are all very worthy things to talk about. These were Roger Ebert's dying words. Did you know these were Roger it's all an elaborate hopes It's all an elaborate hopes All right, it's time to, for me to say my thank yous. So thank you to Cat Pastor. She's the technical producer here. And she's producing this show and making it happen uh, so nicely. Uh, Jonathan McPants has come up from uh, his hobbit hole uh, to uh, produce this episode. I mean, he produces a lot of episodes, but he's usually at home. Uh, but you have to come up here to Hartford. We're, we're all together, separated by panes of very thick uh, microbe-proof glass. But we're all together in the studios. Um, all right. So what should I do? I should take some more calls here. Um, that was a nine-minute phone call. And that was... I mean, he had a very interesting, poignant story to tell, so I kind of let it go. But basically, uh, we can't – if we do one more nine-minute phone call, the show will be over. So <laughs> uh, that's my way of saying, you know, be as succinct as you possibly can. Here is Adam in Southington. Hi. Hello. Hi. So I just wanted to bring up a conversation about uh, language. I yeah. know you had an older gentleman saying he doesn't like the language of a younger folk yeah. and – a uh, younger person not liking the language of an older person. So mm-hmm. I'm a younger person not liking the language of other young people when they use the word adult as a verb. Give me an like, example. Um, so a tweet saying, I just bought my first couch, hashtag adulting. Adulting, yeah. Well, if it's a hashtag, I feel like a hashtag, you know, is okay. And that's more of a gerund, it's a verb form, you know, Um. Uh, uh, but like, do people actually say, I- "I'm going to adult this situation"? Yeah, I think people will will say that, like, "I'm adulting today," yeah. or "I've adulted because I paid the rent for the first time." So it's a non-transitive verb. It's a non-it's an intransitive verb. So yeah, you don't adult something; you just adult. Well, I've been adult. I've been out adulting, uh, which means buying my first sofa or whatever. 
I don't know. That yeah. doesn't bother me that much. It's kind of, I don't know. It's nice. <laughs> I mean, look, Seinfeld, on Seinfeld, they use yada yada as a verb. You know, remember? Well, yeah, you probably don't remember. You're too young, but. No. You know. Oh, no. I know Costanza's lines. Yeah. So you, they'd say, well, you can't yada yada sex. Um, so I think if you, yada yada can be a verb, adult can be a verb. I don't know. So it doesn't, I don't know. I, I think the way that people I, – I used to be much more prescriptive, which is what you're being right now. Uh, and Peter Sokolowski from uh, Merriam-Webster used to come on the show and say, no, for the most part, lexicography and our reactions to language, they're more properly descriptive. I mean, you know, at least for spoken English and probably anything you see on social media. It's kind of more a description of what's happening. So what's happening is people are using adult as a verb. Uh, or, you know, and, and as either a, a participle or a, a gerund. Um, and, and we may just have to live with that until it goes away. One good thing about social media, Adam, I think we both agree, it's probably not going to last very long. And to a quick point to your phone situation, yeah. I'm 31 years old and I've had a flip phone for the last <laughs> six years and it was a $25 purchase and I'm very proud of it. <laughs> All right. Well, all right. We, we, we'll just do some really quick. I didn't mean to make this show about phones and it hasn't been about phones so far, but it's briefly going to be about phones. Here's Walter in Marlboro. Hi. Hey. Yes. Colin? Yes. Uh, yes, I had a... I was going to get a smartphone because friends of mine had them, and they very remarkable how you can use them for information. Right. So first, I went to Consumer Cellular. I bought one at Target, and I couldn't figure out how to operate it. So I went back and got some instruction from them. It helped a little bit, but then I tried to get instruction from the company itself, yeah. and you call up the number, and they make you wait for like twenty minutes. So I brought the phone back and got a refund. I got tired of dealing with that. So then I saw an advertisement for jitterbug uh, telephones, and they're much easier to use for senior citizens. I'm 79, so mm-hmm. it's slow with the computers, you know. Huh. So, so I bought one, and it got here, and they were very helpful uh, with uh, me learning how to use the phone. But it ended up that I had a problem because I live in the state forest and there's too many trees <laughs> around here so I can't pick up data from the cell towers. Walter, you're uh, an ant. I can tell. You are an ant. Uh, and and for that reason, I, mean, I think picking up, if you're an ant, you know, you live in a forest, I think picking up new technology is it's beside the point, you know. You just got to commune with the trees. You're a shepherd, a shepherd of the trees. And don't don't get a phone. Don't, what would you even? Would you call up another ent? It doesn't have a phone. Um, I'm sorry. <laughs> that might not be the preferred pronoun of ents. I, I don't know. Uh, all right. Here's uh, Lee from Scarsdale with another practical phone point, and then we're going to move on to other topics. Hi, Lee. Yep, other topics. Yeah. Hi, Colin. I'm your iPhone alter ego. Yeah. I had an old phone, and I I upgraded. I had a seven. I upgraded to an eleven, and I thought to myself, Why am I holding a tablet in my hands? <laughs> so, uh, for everyone who's interested, you can get that same nice small phone in an iPhone SE, and Apple will take any of your old phones, if you don't know what to do with them, you send it in, they'll crush it, recycle it, and send you a, a check in the process, gift that, card. That, that also, yeah. I, mean, I actually bought an, an SE for my son, so I'm aware of this product. Uh, and you're happy with it, right? It's fabulous. It's yeah. a teeny little phone. It's a tool, not a tablet, which yeah. is all I needed. Right. I think that's important that you have to, you the user, I mean, this is a sort of a semi-profound point, not just about smartphones, 
But um, but I mean, you, the user, have to define what it is you're going to do with the phone as opposed to being told what you're going to do with the phone. I also want to say that although Walter is an ant, and I, first of all, I adore ants, so I mean, that's not a slur or anything, but um, increasingly when you buy products now, they don't tell you how to use the products, particularly products like that one. Like if you buy an iPhone, I don't know, there's no instruction manual or anything, is there? I've never seen anything like that. They just give you a box with an iPhone and some headphones and a charger and you're on your own, right? I'm not, I don't think there's any like how to use this thing. You know what? You know how you use this thing? You look up how to use this thing on the thing. That's how you do it. All right. We're moving on here. We're moving on. We're not going to talk about phones anymore. Here's Tyler in Bradford. Hi, Tyler. Hey, how are you? I'm fine. <laughs> um, I wanted to talk about being tailgated on the highway. I'm getting really sick of it. It's, I'm not even that slow of a driver, but it's all the time. And even in rain and snow, um, Sometimes a lot of it is pickup trucks and bigger cars. Mm-hmm. You know, I just, I feel like I'm being bullied. And you are. I wish there was a way that I could, like, tell people how it makes the, the car feel that they're tailgating. So well, I was like, oh, you know, I'll, I'll call Colin. Well, slowing down. I mean, I, I routinely will, I mean, you don't want to abruptly slow down. It would be very dangerous. But, you know, re, I mean, re, refusing to get out of their way and slowing down is like one of the few ways that you can send them a message. You don't want to send them too direct a message because you don't know who that person is. That person has already uh, proved that he's a psycho killer tailgater at minimum. He might be something even worse. Um, so, but, you know, I, I find just slowing down. I, there's like a place where I have to, there's a route that I travel pretty regularly and I'm often traveling it at night, around 1030 at night, and there's a left exit. It's 84 eastbound, the Park Road exit. And there's like nobody who ever believes I'm really getting off the highway from the left lane. There's always some maniac behind me, you know, who's like, what are you doing here? And flashing his lights and all this kind of stuff. And tailgating, yeah. So I slow down a little bit more. I, I don't know if that's good advice, though. You were looking for good advice, right? I, I definitely do that, and I've I've had some success with it, and other times I've had people get closer to the point where I am yeah. worried they're going to touch my bumper with their car, yeah. and then I've had them swerve around me. Um, but you know, sometimes it happens, and in, in uh, only two times in my life this has happened where they've done it so close to my car that mm-hmm. I've been so scared to even slow down. I thought they'd crash into me. Yeah, you know, and um, but yeah, it's it's pretty infuriating, I, although I, I try not to have too much road rage. <laughs> right. No, no. But you, you could have road fear, too. You know, they're having road rage. You're having road, you know, road fear and trumbling because God knows what they're going to do to you. If it makes you feel anybody be, any better, Cat Pastor, our technical producer, who is tough as nails, she has the same problem. Uh, she does. She does not like being tailgated. Now, I don't actually know what Cat Pastor would do to somebody who was delegating her. It might not be an entirely passive experience, uh, but uh, you're not alone. I think, well, I look, I don't know if it's all about delegating, but all of the phone lines just lit up all at once. <clears throat> and we have no time left. Well, we have technically two minutes left. Um, and, oh, no, okay, so we'll, I can squeeze one more tailgating call in. I'm sorry to Oa. Uh, I didn't, I'm not going to get to Oa in time, I can tell. But here's Demetrius from Middletown. Hi, you're on the air. How you doing? Okay. Uh, I was just calling in to talk about uh, the comment that the lady made about tailgating. Yeah. 
Yeah, I just uh, I'm actually a, a pretty fast driver. Maybe the opposite of what you guys were just talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I am an aggressive driver, but I believe that there's a lot of people that drive on the road now that drive in the fast lane and believe because they're going exactly the speed limit um, or maybe a little bit over it that they get to stay in the fast lane. But that lane is actually a passing lane. Mm-hmm. Everybody should be in the right lane. But the, yes, I, I realize that, and frequently the person, particularly in a two-lane situation, a slow person in the left lane creates a whole bunch of other dangers because people start pulling into the right lane, A, to pass that person on the right, but also maybe unexpectedly doing that. And if you're on a, a, a highway with kind of multiple entrances like, entrances, like the Berlin Turnpike, you could have people shooting out from driveways as you're pulling into the right w- lane to get past the slow person in the left lane. But technically, the yeah. person in the left lane, if they're going the speed limit or above, they do have the, they have the right to be there. They could be there. Uh, I mean, it's it's not optimal that they're there uh, at times, and it does, particularly with aggressive drivers behind them, create you know bad situations. Uh, but I, I think you guys should form an association, an association of aggressive drivers. You know, and <laughs> um, and, and and you could advance your claims. I mean, I think there are a lot of people listening thinking, "Oh, Demetrius is the guy who was behind me last night." Um, Screw him. But I think, you know, the American Association of Aggressive Drivers, AAAD, is that right? Yeah. American Association of Aggressive Drivers. And then you hire a spokesperson. Um, and, and, <laughs> and you know what you also do? You have National Aggressive Driving Day, right? Where really every – I don't exactly know what you would do differently <laughs> on National Aggressive Driving Day that you don't already do. But you would do something, right? It would be like a day – I guess you get interviewed by people like me, right? You know? Um, but, you know, I, anyway, I'm just sort of suggesting that as a, as a road that you can take in your life that is different from the road that you're taking with other people in cars. And with that, we have to say goodbye. Thanks to Kat. Thanks to Jonathan McPants. Thanks to you for listening. Now let's all get out of here. The number you have reached has been disconnected.